Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. I'm going to start by apologising to Ursula von der Leyen. As if vaccine wars weren't bad enough, I kept referring to her last week as Ursula von der Leyen. Sorry to Ursula and the entire von der Leyen silk merchant dynasty. <laughs> with me today are three people with surnames it is impossible to get wrong. <laughs> ne- that Lame is not true. <laughs> Naomi Smythe is CEO of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hello. Did you know that in Northern Ireland, where I grew up, um, quite a few people spell Smith with a Y, but don't pronounce it Smythe? It's really weird. That would make life very hard. For the, for the people of Northern Ireland. Um, in the latest YouGov poll, I see the Tories are up four at 41, Labour are down four at 37. Now, polls have been bobbing up and down for months now. Mm. But do you think the apparent success of the vaccine rollout is what is lifting the government up? I mean, you'd like to hope so, um, because otherwise there's you know precious little political incentive for them to be upping their game, right? Um, mind you, the fact that they are still in the lead after what can only be described as the year of great foobars, like does make you wonder if the Conservative Party has developed some kind of, I don't know, twisted form of herd immunity to real world impacts. Um, and, and, you know, I think it was one of you actually that made the point to me earlier this week that for most people, I mean, as, as horrendous as the UK death rate is, and it is so much worse than uh, any other country at the moment, and, you know, 100,000, 120,000 people are dead, that's only, haha, only a million people who are grieving, whereas there are going to be 60 million people getting a jab in their arm. And so for the vast majority of people, they're, they're kind of key touch point with the government during the pandemic is going to be one that's about making them feel safe and secure and able to get their lives back together. So we probably are going to see um, the Conservatives doing well in the polls for a while. Does the public have a a recency bias? Because I was thinking about the Iraq war, which began as a success militarily, if not morally, and then became a failure and remained a failure forevermore. Now, this government's response has been a failure in many respects, but may conclude with this major success with the vaccine so is that is that sort of what people will will remember the 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 relatively upbeat ending rather than the horrors that preceded it that's a very good question and i think you know it it cuts both ways because the major success and you know if that's what the vaccine turns out to be and it looks like it will won't be recent forever right And so if people are hurting financially come the next general election, that's what they're going to remember. So that recency, you know, the going into the polling booth, it'll be, well, what am I feeling right now? Um, And if we're, you know, at least a couple of years away from that and the economy keeps doing what it's doing, then I think that 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 could be the, the main driver. I mean, not having a disease is not as immediate a concern as not having a dinner. And in the same poll, the Greens are up two at six level with uh, the Lib Dems. Do you think this is 
uh, down to sort of disgruntled Corbynites that, that while they're waiting to set up their own real socialist party, that, that the Greens is sort of a natural protest vote home. I mean, to be honest, <clears throat> could easily be disgruntled pro-Europeans like me um, captured in that poll. Um, so, so not necessarily. And look, let's face it, disgruntled Corbynites are more likely to turn their fire inwards than anything else. Um, on Sunday, uh, there was apparently a virtual meeting that was called Stand Up for Labour Party Democracy. And they had about 400 uh, people there, including former frontbencher Richard Bergen. And all the talk was of the need to prepare for a leadership challenge. Well, we'll have more of that from Ian Dunt, editor at largerpolitics.co.uk. I'm back in action after being laid low by COVID. Hello, Ian. Hello, mate. Are you fully recovered? Uh, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. I mean, I, you know, the, the period in which we just sort of sit staring at the wall thinking this is fucking dreadful has now passed. So now I'm free to sit in various different rooms of the flat and think this is completely dreadful. <laughs> We're mostly back to normal now. Physically, you're still a bit weak. Like There's a kind of hollowness in the chest when you do any exercise at all, even a walk or whatever. So, so you, it, it basically does sort of feel like it's just like aged you two decades but that is sort of improving sort of day by day really yeah yeah we're, we're definitely out of the business end of the fucking thing yeah that's good um so picking up on Naomi's point Unite Momentum and Socialist Campaign Group MPs are demanding a recall conference citing a crisis of quote anger and disillusionment with Starmer's leadership can you briefly explain what is a recall conference and what do they expect it to do <laughs> Um, well, I mean, basically, it's an emergency party conference, and they want to have it um, online, sort of organised to coincide with the the party's women women's conference in June. Um, and they, you know, it's to what well, the quote is. I think their their crisis is to it's because of widespread sense of crisis in the party. So really, it means fuck all. It means absolutely nothing except for the fact that they are still in exactly the same emotional and psychological state as they were a few months ago, and presumably will never change from. Well, yes. I mean, the, to, to define this crisis, a recent Ipsos Mori poll shows that 48% of voters think Labour has improved under Starmer and only 4% think it's got worse, uh, which is a, a crisis you can live with, I'd imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, this is a, you, you can, the polling is not great, right? I mean, th- there's no way of looking at it that thinking it's great. And it, it does disarm me to see that people even now, after this, say that they trust Boris Johnson to manage coronavirus more than they trust Keir Starmer. I mean, that is an unthinkable thing for me, but there's no point just sitting there going, the public are fucking mad. You have to think, well, what is what is going wrong with the messaging? And some of that he can't control. Some of that is just in a, in a pandemic, you don't have a pulpit, you know, as an opposition leader. Boris Johnson really, really does have a pulpit. Um, and there's broader, there's broader, trends as well, which is that it's very difficult for people like us, I think, to accept the extent to which people just do, even now, really like Boris Johnson. They do. And there's no, there's no, we can't get past that fact. And it's in fucking comprehensible to me that people feel that way, but it evidently remains the case and they're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. So there's movement that you need there, but there's no way of cutting this polling that makes it Keir Starmer's fault. You know, you look at it over and over and he is the thing that is most popular in the Labour Party. People are not blaming him. A lot of this comes down to the fact that people still do not trust the Labour Party, a lot of which has to do with Corbyn's leadership, but a lot of which goes back much further than that, goes back to Ed Miliband and arguably, in some cases, even the Blair period. So there's deep stuff there. There's a lot to be dealing with. But what you can't conclude from it is this is all Starmer's fault. Although, of course, unsurprisingly, that is exactly what they have concluded. 
Our guest this week is the Brexit and Westminster reporter for Politics Home. Before that, he spent five years at Business Insider. Hello, Adam Payne. Hello, guys. Thank you very much for having me, finally. I've made it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what kept us. <laughs> it was shellfish. That's, that that was the key to unlocking that <laughs> There will be there will be there will be lots of shellfish later. Um, Pornhub. Michael Gove uh, tweeted a report the other day claiming that independence would cost Scotland far more than Brexit, uh, thus blatantly embracing both experts and project fear. Are the same people who proved that economic arguments were no match for nationalism in 2016 planning to pit economic arguments against nationalism in the next independence referendum when it, when it comes? Yes, I think that's exactly what's going on. And I think when slash if that referendum does happen, I probably lean towards more when it happens. I think you're going to see quite an ironic sort of reversal of roles in in the sense that you're going to have the government, which obviously is going to be spearheading the campaign to preserve the union, putting forward an economic argument for why we should stick together. And you're going to have the SNP, which, as as we all know, has been one of the leading opponents um, of Brexit, is going to be putting forward perhaps a more emotional, ideological case for breaking away from your biggest market and your union. What I found interesting about that Michael Gove tweet, firstly, was that when you actually clicked on the article and kind of scrolled down a few paragraphs, actually admitted that Brexit had done significant economic damage. So I, I get the, I don't know, I, I get the impression that like key figures in government have just kind of given up on trying to make the economic case for Brexit now. But I think what else is interesting is that one of the big problems, for myriad problems facing the perhaps inevitable union campaign 2.0, which is what is the positive argument for the union they need one i think and just saying just kind of pointing out that well you know that policy that i i campaigned for engineered and delivered over the last five years well remember how bad that was well where to hear about this um, <laughs> I, 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 I think i think that if that's if that is an, an indication of what another unionist campaign is going to look like I think there might be in quite a lot of trouble. I do hope the SNP just adopts the slogan "Take back control for lols." Well, that's that's the thing, isn't it? I think the, it's so interesting. I do think that once, um, what well, once, once we are hopefully um, in a sort of post-vaccine world and things do return to some semblance of normality, I do think this union question is going to be the political story. Um, along with all the big questions about COVID recovery. And the SNP, I think, is perhaps going to have lights thrown onto it that perhaps weren't there previously. For example, one that comes to mind is the border question. If Scotland was to break away from the rest of the United Kingdom and indeed become an EU member state, which it wants to do, that's central to its to its pitch. What does that mean for the border between Scotland um, and England? Um, I mean... I, I know that it's, I've, I've seen it tweeted about, I've seen it mentioned in articles, but I think that is a, a massive question, which I think when you talk about those people in the middle of the independence debate, perhaps who are 
not sure either way. I think the question of the border and what happens could, could be really significant for, for those sorts of people who could determine the result of a referendum. Well, thank you for teeing up what we're going to be talking about later, uh, which is chaos at the borders as all kinds of businesses, especially small ones, find themselves banjaxed by Brexit. Why are so many things going so wrong and how can they be fixed? And it's been a bad year so far for the so-called lockdown sceptics who have neither the science nor the people on their side. <laughs> have we finally discovered that the British public's appetite for populist bullshit has limits? <laughs> and what's the connection between COVID scepticism and Brexit? Plus, in the extra bit for Patreon supporters, is that COVID burnout you're feeling or something deeper? Before we start, just a reminder that our next live Zoom exclusive to Patreon people is on Thursday, 25th of February at 8pm. It's now a free politics talk and inevitable drinking games with me, Naomi and Ian, plus Roz Taylor and Alex Andreu. Search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast, sign up and you'll get free access. Plus the podcast a day early and our famous t-shirts and mugs, including the hot new hardcore centrist mug inspired by Guido Fawkes' attack on friend of the podcast, Christina Pagel. First up, the import-export situation is getting worse every day and it can't just be put down to teething problems. Brexit is affecting everything from shellfish, there you go Adam, to toys, to cheese, to bees, and now it's threatening the food supply. The boss of JD Sports has said Brexit is considerably worse than he feared, with red tape and delays adding double-digit millions in extra costs. Is the government going to do anything about it before businesses go under? Adam, you just published a piece at Politics Home about a seafood business in Yorkshire that's closing after 40 years due to Brexit. Um, what went wrong for them and, I suppose, the sector in general? Well, what went wrong for this company specifically, and I guess it's it's a microcosm for a lot of the issues the rest of the um, sector are facing, is that obviously before we left the single market and customs union, that if you wanted to sell a fish or, or multiple fish, perhaps more is more probable, to the European Union, you didn't have to um, fill in paperwork, really, because as you guys well know, and the listeners know, um, we all adhere to the same rules. Now, although under the terms of the Brexit trade deal, we have um, reclaimed some of, of our fish, the kind of catch to that, no pun intended, is that we have to fill in a hell of a lot more paperwork now. We've got um, customs, paperwork, very strict um, export health certificates, etc. And what's happened is that this company in Yorkshire is one of many companies which, faced with this mountain of new paperwork, is really struggling to get its fresh fish exports to customers on the continent on time. And that's the key, isn't it? We're talking about fresh food, food which up until December 31st, New Year's Eve, um, would leave businesses in Yorkshire, in Scotland, etc., and reach their customers in Europe within 24 hours or maybe 36 hours. Yeah, I'm sure I, I read something about a, a Dalgetty Bay prawn of the highest quality used to go from there to being on the plate of a you know swanky Parisian restaurant within exactly that kind of 24 hours. And, and that supply chain was really prided and you know enabled people to charge a lot of money for it. Precisely. And what's happening now is that those orders are not happening at that speed due to delays. What does that mean? It means that customers on the continent are cancelling orders because obviously they, they expect their fish to arrive uh, when they expect them to arrive, uh, when they need them to arrive to fill supermarket shelves. And some fish has been destroyed en route because it's not fresh anymore. 
And I, and I guess the more long-term worry, because these are kind of short-term things we're talking about, is that these customers in Europe, if they do look elsewhere for their fish, they might they probably won't come back because that, that is how supply chain, that's how markets work. Um, and I guess more recently, what, what I've been writing about perhaps over the last fortnight, although it does feel like it has engulfed my entire existence, is shellfish. And the issue there is perhaps more, even more severe, although that might be hard to sort of believe, because there is a certain sort of shellfish, specifically shellfish, which are caught live in what we call Class B waters. And Class B waters, effectively, are most waters around England and Wales. They are now banned from the EU altogether. So we're not talking about delays or paperwork or things taking five days, which used to take one day or two days. We're talking about an outright ban. Nemi, according to the Road Hoarders Association, exports to the EU fell by 68% in January year on year. Um, Is any of that COVID related or is this all or at least uh, primarily down to Brexit? I think I think it's clear that you know most of it is uh, a result of the new trading relationship that we have with the EU because that is a downgraded relationship. Um, it's not frictionless, uh, as we've been hearing, despite what the Prime Minister said. Um, and 68% is a very, very big figure, right? It's more than two thirds of exports. And uh, it's a real blow to this government idea of so-called global Britain. Um, but judging from the companies who have spoken up, you know, the supermarkets, JD Sports, um, eyeing an EU warehouse, you know, Brexit really is the huge factor in all of this. And it, COVID hadn't clattered us in January last year. Um, and we know that pandemic travel restrictions um, had already hurt the seafood industry in December. So it's inevitably, you know, true that there is a COVID impact in the figures. But how big an impact? I mean, I just think it, it, it's one thing to bump your head on the plane uh, as you leave it. It's another to like be falling out with no parachute at all at the time. It, 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 it's, it's majority Brexit. And some Brexiters are talking about the UK becoming more self-sufficient uh, in food. Um, so why, um, why, why bother sorting out the, uh, the, the, tra- the transport when you can just grow your own? We will presumably have more than enough shellfish. How realistic is this idea that we could could it could it be done and when? It's not realistic, and I think if it was going to happen, it it might have happened at the start of the pandemic, for instance. It, there's a lot to unpack here. So, so firstly, when at Best of Britain we were doing our affordable food deal campaign last year, when we were really concerned about the tariffs that that could have come in on really basic essential items like pasta and tin tomatoes, um, you know, in the event of a, a no deal Brexit, we looked at this self sufficiency thing, and you know, is the argument back to us just going to be, oh well, sod buying it from Italy, we can grow it ourselves, and I'm afraid even if we were going to, it would take decades. You would probably have to polytunnel over most of the Northeast in order to grow sufficient amounts of the fresh fruits and vegetables that we import from Southern Europe, particularly during the winter. And and that's before you look at any of the infrastructure around canning and bottling and all those sorts of plants that we just don't have in the UK. So even if we were to do it, it would take us a really long time. Secondly, we don't want to be self-sufficient in food um, because then you are solely reliant on 
your own homegrown stuff. And if there is a crop failure or an environmental disaster or something like that, you don't have those backup supply chains in place. And, you know, if, if COVID has taught us anything, surely it's how interconnected a world we have and need to be in terms of finding solutions to problems. And, and also it's tough because Brits don't like to eat everything that we export, you know, um, take pork for an example. We love back bacon in this country, obviously not me personally, but, <laughs> but we're much less fond of other cuts than well, that, we export. Well, that slipped out, didn't it? <laughs> I, I was so impressed by how dispassionately Naomi was talking about all these various animal parts, know, <laughs> and then suddenly the veganism slipped. Uh, but you know, bloody love importing an avocado and all that. So you know, people are glass <laughs> Um So unless we want to go back to eating seasonal treats like turnip all the time, um, <laughs> you know, we, we're not we're not going to be self sufficient. And Gove admits that you know that the, the, these are problems and that, that you know and obviously he used to wear the defra hat and defra as, as adam have said have sort of failed to understand all this and i just the only other point i'd like to make about what adam was saying was you know this is so sad because yes these these fisheries and shellfish producers and all the rest of it are economically worth just a tiny fraction uh, of of uk gdp but we kind of sold out financial services and the real big hitters on uk gdp notionally to protect great british fishing so if we've done neither that's that's really scandalous well ian this is what amazes me is that we seem to talk about fish every other week uh during the transition period and they can't even get that right um and some of this stuff they, they seem to have just literally not noticed and not anticipated what mechanisms are in place for renegotiating the arrangements in specific areas? Are these wrinkles that you can iron out and you just go to them and, and talk about, you know, work something out around shellfish? Or are some of these the sort of long-term problems that cannot be changed? You might eventually get to a stage where they could go into negotiations on certain areas. And there's certain parts of the economy where you could do more, like on mutual recognition or something like that to try and facilitate stuff. You could have these little mini packages. But ultimately, you know, third country status it's third country status. I, I see some people commenting about it going, well, this is a really draconian form of third party. So it's like, well, no, it's just third party status. You, this is what we asked for. It's not it, when, when the ministers come up and we're like, well, you know, what are these teething problems? And we didn't expect the Europeans are still coming to something. It's like, no, you specifically asked for this. You know, you, there were other options that were open to you, which was about aligning in order to make sure that trade is certainly has less friction. You're not going to get frictionless as it was before, but having less friction. But you weren't going to sign up to anything that looked remotely like that. And this is the consequence. I mean, in terms of how it's going to play out, there will eventually be a kind of equilibrium. You know, I mean, some business will be lost, as Adam was saying. People are going to find, you know, new supplies, or they'll stick with the new supplies that they've been forced to find on the continent in, in some places. But if, and, and delays won't go away either. But businesses will eventually learn exactly what the paperwork is that they need to do. They will eventually be able to structure things um, in a more sort of tedious, painstaking, expensive way, but nevertheless structure them in a, in a way that allows them to, to continue doing business. The trouble is that, remember, we've only seen literally the half of it because we still haven't introduced the import checks on the UK side for European goods coming over. That starts in April, works its way through for the three months after that. So over the spring and the summer, we then see what happens when we start putting up these requirements on things coming in to us on the other side. So there is still a lot worse for this thing to get before we start to find things getting much better. We said for years that the time would come when Project Fear became Project actually happening. 
And a lot of these businessmen, especially, you know, the fishing industry voted leave and some of them have, you know, appeared on TV to go, oh, I didn't want this to happen. How long can the government sort of keep either downplaying or denying these problems? I mean, obviously it's good news for us in the second referendum uh, campaign, but... Um, <laughs> But, you, you know, if there are people that are just going to have a, a, a real sense of betrayal, uh, presumably that, that that's storing up a political problem, just, you know, being brutally electoral about it. It's such a mess at the moment, right? Like, it's so hard to see clearly, given the, just the, the range of shit that's hitting us. The first one is obviously that COVID takes the oxygen out of any news story. And just nothing really gets a proper look in, in this period. And it won't until it dies away. And look, I mean, more people are getting vaccined. The, the, the summer and spring will eventually come and lockdown is functioning. And so, if it, you know, even in the medium term, way before we get rid of COVID altogether, there will be more space. You may remember over the summer, it didn't feel like everything was quite so obsessively COVID related. I think it'll be the same in, you know, after another three months or so here. But for the time being, it's impossible for any other story to get a real sort of toehold in the debate. There's also the impact of the narrative around the vaccine sort of war, basically, with Europe um, and what the Europeans did or what Brussels, really what von der Leyen did. Um, von der Leyen? Which, von der Leyen. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm not going to have to fucking say it like that every single time now. <laughs> Great. Okay, von der Leyen. Um, so that doesn't really have anything to do with Brexit, except that in terms of the mood painting of the whole thing, I think uh, it plays directly into the government's messaging around Europeans are just still a bit pissed off about everything. That's why they're making it hard. It's not our fault. You know, everything will be better once they get over this whole thing. And that, I think, is a much more, it's fucking nonsense of the highest order, but it's a much more compelling narrative given the way that the Europeans behaved over the vaccines. And I think that will be its effect on many, many voters. But there is a, a part that makes me more hopeful about this having more of a toehold in objective reality. And that's that British businesses are properly suffering. And they're suffering, excuse my sort of cynicism in this, but in quite a telegenic way. You know, you, you are seeing, um, they're not getting a lot of traction at the moment, but they are there, you know, broadcast news showing these guys, showing fishermen, showing farmers um, and showing small businesses, describing what is happening. And that is being done in a way that we were sort of, you know, d dying for the BBC to do before Brexit took place. And, and it wasn't really. Now those stories are getting heard. And I think maybe as the COVID debate dies down over the spring and the summer, they will actually start to take on a bit more political traction. So Gove seems to be at the, the centre of a lot of this. You've got the Road Haulage Association complaining that he isn't really engaging with their concerns. Uh, and you've got him admitting that there are, in fact, serious problems with the new Irish sea border that no human could have anticipated how much of this is is on him i i think with with michael gov it's he is a bit of an enigma and that <laughs> that might sound like a compliment um it, that, that, <laughs> that, that word is often deployed to describe like a like a mercurial footballer or something but I'd say with, with Michael Gove, he's been through an interesting few weeks because even in the opening, the first few weeks of January, when there were clearly issues at the border, the government line spearheaded by Gove was, these are teething problems, these are temporary, you know, we almost expected these things to happen, don't worry guys, we'll be fine. Um, then recently he said, hold on a minute, to paraphrase, these, a lot of these issues pertaining to GBNI aren't teething problems. And now his recent line I believe, was that trade is returning to normal. So we've 
the, the the implication being we've kind of endured the worst of it. And and I think we're we're probably on this journey Michael Gove seems to be going through the next few weeks. The, the next stop on that journey will probably be admitting that the problems aren't going away. Trade isn't going to return to to um, normal, whatever that means. And I just, he has made himself a hostage to fortune there because, as far as I'm aware. Trade isn't returning to normal. Exporters are very wary of sending stuff to the EU. As Ian mentioned um, a few moments ago, that um, the UK soon is going to start introducing import controls very gradually leading up to the summer. So we're, we're talking about more friction, more paperwork on stuff coming in. Because remember that we, up until now, the issues have related to exports. And also when it comes to NIGB, there are various grace periods affecting supermarkets moving food, affecting customs checks on parcels, affecting a, a, a ban on chilled meat, the sausage ban as it's become known, that are going to expire either very, very soon or kind of soon, depending on whether they get um, extended or not. So this idea, I think that January was really difficult but don't worry, things are going to gradually get better in February. And then by Easter, we'll kind of all be at Dover singing Kumbaya. It's not going to play out like that. And it'll be interesting to see. What I think is interesting is Gove and the government have admitted now that they want to see things changed in regards to NIGB. Will that soon, will they extend that logic, that argument to UK, EU? Up until now, the UK government has been really reluctant to get get back around the negotiating table with the EU, perhaps because they, they don't want to look like they've caved in uh, only a few weeks into this deal um, coming into effect. But I think the next step, perhaps, on this journey Michael Gove and the government is going on is saying, you know what, the issues across the Irish Sea are, are really similar to the issues we're experiencing across the short straits. And we're, we're going to have to kind of swallow our pride and try and sort this out with Brussels. Next up, is it all over for the lockdown sceptics? Uh, led by Tory MP Neil O'Brien, there's been growing impatience and disgust with the likes of Toby Young, Alison Pearson and Julia Hartley Brewer. Unheard and The Spectator have been forced to run pieces defending the principle of scepticism, if not the details. A year into the pandemic, how have so many Brexit cheerleaders become COVID pariahs? Ian, this lot have been uh, banging away at this for months. Um, has, a, has a combination of the second wave and the third lockdown effectively finished them off, or at least meant that they're just not going to get any more traction than they already have? It really feels like they're getting a harder twatting over it this time than they have been, you know, like late last year. Or even, you know, in that, that sort of period during the tears when you're clearly leading to, to the, to the, to the new wave of lockdowns, where really, you know, the, well, we all know the people we're fucking talking about, you know, the Alison Pearsons and Julia Hartley Brewers and the, all, all, all the twats were really able to just keep on saying this stuff over and over. And, and there was a, there was a kind of degree of tolerance. I, I think there's a noticeably reduced tolerance for them at the moment. And look, a lot of that, comes down to i mean partly just you know when you're in a period where you know we had days on end where well over a thousand people were dying every fucking day right yeah it was just it's a level of disaster you can't conceive of really and i just think the tolerance for them then dies and the second part is just 
the evidence. It's just, you know, anyone who has the capacity to look at a graph, a very basic graph of infections by time, can see what the causal effect is here. And it's very hard for them to get out from underneath the, the reality of that. And you just published a piece uh, about the connection between COVID sceptics and Brexiters. I mean, and there is a huge overlap. What is it that worked for them with Brexit that isn't working with COVID? Um, to me, it's about the speed and specificity of the refutation, right? So, I mean, you had with Brexit, you just, it's just a liar's charter, right? Like it was, they started talking about it, what, 2015, you know, certainly by 2016. And to this, you know, last month, was the first time we saw any practical effect of what was going on. That is half a decade. You can talk for half a decade before anyone is going to be able to produce the evidence that you're wrong. Now we're getting the evidence in. Um, you know, we can demonstrate, oh, look, if you have to fill in a bunch of border checks, if you have, you know, entry and exit declarations and safety and security documentation and SPS checks, that you are going to see obstructions with your trade. But Everyone's forgotten the debates that we would hear, you know, in 2017 about frictionless borders and what's the technology we can use in order to make sure none of this happens. No one even fucking remembers that, right? Because you could say this guff and you weren't mm. going to be disproved for years afterwards. And this right now is the very tepid early moments of seeing the consequences. The real consequences of Brexit come from looking across the whole landscape of the economy, you know, financial services, how many companies had to set up a subsidiary in Europe, what did that do for their long-term hiring? You know, did they start to put the, the more value-add stuff, knowledge-based parts of their chain into Europe rather than keeping it here? What's happened, you know, to, to, to even carbon trading? You know, all these different aspects you have to put together over years and years to tell the story. So it's diffuse, and it takes a long time to be clear. Now, that's not how it fucking works with COVID. Every day with COVID, we get data on infections and on deaths. So it is immediate, immediate refutation of the argument. And it's not fucking diffuse. It is just some really basic, minimal sets of numbers that show the way this is going. And on that, they keep on trying those same techniques. And I have to point out, by the way, this is only true in the fucking media class and the political class. It's not true in the public. In the public, there is no divide, or a very, very minor one, between remain, leave, and the, the attitude people have towards lockdowns. Mm. This is a purely media-based phenomenon. But all of these guys are Brexiters, and you see them trying that same old bullshit that they were tried before, and this time it isn't working because the data works in a rather different way. But they don't, and it's fascinating because obviously the huge, the huge difference, like you say, is they don't have the people behind them. So with Brexit, they could like, if you ch did challenge them on, on, on lies, they would just go, 52% will are the people. And, and, and it's mm. been quite funny watching them waiting for some kind of public swing in their direction that just hasn't happened. They're almost reduced to sort of raging at the public, you know, in a sort of wake-up sheeple way. And mm. I was like, hang on, I thought the public was very wise because they voted for Brexit, and now they seem to be an enormous disappointment to you. <laughs> um, and, uh, on the issue of scepticism, uh, which I was talking about those defences that, that I read, do they actually qualify as real sceptics? Because it, it, it seems to be used as a cover for people who have a particular ideological line and, and are not sceptical about anything on, on their side. Is the word misused? Yes, it is. Um, and I say, I mean, I use it, like I use it today in copy. Um, and I noticed some people on sort of Twitter being like, you really shouldn't be calling them sceptics because it, it grants them a degree of respectability to which they're not entitled. And, and I think it's a completely fair criticism. My problem is that when you give up on the word scepticism, uh, skeptic for, for this kind in this kind of context, you usually go to the word denier, 
And I fucking hate that word because I, I, I always felt like, you know, you, you'd hear it brought up. Do you remember like you'd hear climate change denier? You'd hear um, in the sort of the 2010s, people would talk a lot about austerity deniers for basically anyone that still believed in Keynesian economics. Like what I don't like about it is that it feels like it just takes a little bit of the moral sickness of Holocaust denial and applies it elsewhere. I think that the word denier carries with that association we have with it is Holocaust denial. And it quite cynically takes that, the, 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 the fucking putrid nature of that and applies it politically towards one's enemy. So I kind of try to avoid denier. It just doesn't seem like the right way to go. And so I'm a bit of, of a loss, really. I'm also not that keen on fixating too much on the words we use. I mean, you know, these guys are typically called COVID, uh, COVID deniers, although, well, many of them are, frankly, but whatever. They're mostly lockdown deniers. Um, they're called lockdown skeptics. And yet it hasn't done them any good to have that, you know, that sort of respectable moniker attached to them. They're still getting completely fucked out there. They're still losing their credibility and they've completely lost the argument and haven't carried the public with them. So I sort of think it doesn't really matter what word we're using when someone is managing to fuck themselves over so badly on their own terms anyway. Well, they called us Ramonas. So we, could, could we not call them Corona Monas? <laughs> I mean, that has kind of a ring to it. Yeah. Um, Adam, these views, as we said, seem to have a very low ceiling uh, among the general public. Um, now that huge numbers of people are being vaccinated and we haven't really seen public opinion change that much, has the sort of danger of scepticism passed, even as I think the anger at it seems to be um, peaking? I think, it's, well, let's um, unpack that slightly, because I think that when we talk about some of the characters who we've name dropped already, I think uh, obviously all of us are very, you know, we spend a lot of time on, on Twitter, <laughs> not, not a revelation. And I think it's quite easy to get sucked into this idea that the likes of Alison Pearson are sort of incredibly prominent people who have a massive influence on public opinion. When in reality, I think the vast majority of people don't have a clue who she is. That said, clearly, if her opinion, what, what, and, and the opinion her and others um, express, it convinces just a minority of people, then, then the impact can be devastating. I think, I think going back to what Ian said, and, and I'm trying to link it as well to you, you asked a few minutes ago about, can we compare this to Brexit and perhaps no deal Brexit and the effects of Brexit? I think with coronavirus, when you read those death figures, I remember from reporting on Brexit, for example, up until December 31st, I wrote my beat essentially was just writing about what will probably happen if we do Brexit in a certain way. And that might be to do with trade or food supplies or medicine, blah, blah, blah. But no matter how many experts told me that was probably going to happen, it was still only notional. It hadn't happened. Mm. It wasn't material. Whereas with coronavirus, the consequences, the damage, as Ian said, is so immediate and so it's not notional. It, it's happening. It, we all feel it. We all see it. We see the hospital wards close to being sort of overcapacity or perhaps overcapacity. We probably all know people, sadly, who have died. So I, I think the reason these people, however we, des we decide to describe them, 
never really had the public behind them and probably never will, to come back to your question, is that they're losing the argument both materially, i.e. what people are seeing around them, it just completely it completely refutes what the likes of Pearson are saying. But they're kind of losing the emotional argument as well because the consequences of coronavirus are not only materially terrible, but it's in, it's incredibly emotionally taxing as well. So, and and that's how I'd contrast it with, with Brexit, perhaps, because with, with Brexit, the Brexiteers did, did have a, a a pretty effective, clearly emotional argument, and up until December, they had, they had the advantage of the things that people on the other side were warning about, not necessarily people on the other side, experts, were still only really notional and only very recently, i.e. this calendar year, have started to become material. I mean, I think one difference between the UK and the US, of course, is that the is that the government, uh, you know, the, the right-wing party in power, um, obviously has, has, has not has not been flirting with kind of denial, scepticism, um, unlike uh, the Republicans. But also, we don't have Fox News. We don't have GB News yet, although hate to judge it in advance might be a wonderfully balanced, <laughs> stimulating uh, show with all the best people on it. But are we fortunate that it's really only talk radio and the uh, kind of the dark side of LBC and a few newspaper columnists pushing this line and that that there is a kind of there's a different media environment that is perhaps coming this way where they just have a bigger megaphone and a bigger and a sort of a bubble, a tighter bubble. And where you get that, I suppose that's that sort of radicalizing effect and that, that, that this is something that in a different media environment could be worse. Well, I, I think that I'll just come in just quickly. I think you're absolutely right. Um, the, the dark side of LBC sounds like some Louis Theroux documentary in the back. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think you're right in the sense that, as, as I try to articulate, that Alison Pearson, Julia Hartley Brewer, et cetera, et cetera, that, that the platform they enjoy, um, that their fame among the British public is absolutely eclipsed by... Fox News, the people who who present Fox News, who are able to um, express opinions on Fox News. So I, I think um, the, the the kind of hypothesis, hypothesis you put forward is is an interesting one. I mean, I, I guess it's hypothetical, but if we did have a Fox News equivalent in this country, and which you know half the the nation watched um, on a regular basis, how would the you know those sorts of views um, impact the general public? One of the dangers here as well is not really just the megaphone, right? It's not that how much of the public believes it. I mean, that would be worse if shitload of the public were believing it and were ignoring lockdown. Then we'd have a real fucking problem. But one of the big problems is the influence of those who are in this sort of lockdown skepticism bubble. So even though they may not be reaching that many people, some of the people they do reach are basically Tory MPs and even people in cabinet. And one of the issues we've really had with the government's ineptitude of handling this is they keep, and they're doing it now with the fuck, with the borders, is they keep on finding themselves in this half, this useless halfway house by trying to put together the views of those who want to open up the economy and those who want to prioritize public health. This was summarized at cabinet level by Rishi Sunak and Matt Hancock, but that goes all the way down in the parliamentary party. And those guys are reading the Telegraph. They do know who these commentators are and they are listening to Julia Hartley Brewer. Fuck knows why, but they are. And on that basis, I think that you can, you know, we'll never be able to demonstrate it, but there is a potential causal link there between the kind of guff that these guys are, are churning out and the delay and prevarication mm. and haplessness of the government response to the pandemic. Naomi, um, 
to look at the uh, to look at the other side for a minute, I've um, unfortunately had to argue with uh, a few Remainers recently who, who insist that the EU countries are properly vaccinating people with two doses close together, and the UK one dose figures are sort of meaningless and they're not they're not sort of proper vaccination. I mean, these are obviously two strategies, but there seems to be a politicisation of those strategies, you know, around the kind of UK versus EU. Do you think there's a danger of the anti-Tory, anti-Brexit line? actually fostering vaccine hesitancy that that is almost discrediting uh, the UK strategy? Well, it doesn't appear to be being very, as is so often the case with the the FBPE gang on Twitter, they're not being very effective. Uh, All the polls showing that there are, you know, far higher levels of take up of the vaccine by the majority of the population than was modelled and was hoped for, with the exception, of course, of of, um, certain communities where we know that take up has been low and we can talk about that a little bit more. But I think your, your sort of substantive point is around, you know, why are these people having to make everything about Brexit and they, they cannot possibly believe that the government has done something well um, and such is their vitriol towards this very, very pro-Brexit nativist government that anything it does has to be seen through that lens. And that, that's irritating on, on several fronts, not least because what it's doing is it's deflecting away from the bad shit the government has done and is fighting them on the turf that they really want to bring you onto, which is vaccines, because they know that they can do well on that. And the APPG on coronavirus took evidence on vaccines yesterday, um, and and they heard from Professor Deborah Dunn-Walters, who's chair of the British Society of Immunology. And she was asked very specifically about this delay in the doses and and what was driving that and, and, and the efficacy. And she made the very important point that the decision was to delay the second dose was made by the Joint Council on vaccination and immunisation in December because infection rates were so high. So the reason why other countries are not doing the delay isn't because they're worried that it's ineffectual. It's because that they can crack on and do that. We can't because our government failed us so badly by pursuing this half in, half out approach that Ian just talked about, these half measures that were always too little, too late. And frankly, we had no bloody choice. And and also to say that the clinical trials uh, were done based on the three-week gap, um, not because only a three-week gap would make them you know, you know, effective, but because we were rushing the clinical trials, we were trying to get through them so quickly so that we could roll out vaccines. So um, it's a really dumb move by those people arguing with you to to fight on this one. I'm afraid they should be it's going always to dumb the move for on people there. to argue with me. To be <laughs> honest, it's a fool's game. Um, finally, Matt Hancock admitted that that, that they were expecting about a 75 percent take up of vaccines, and there will be a great deal more hesitancy. In fact. Um, of the older age groups where they've now got the the data, you're looking at 90 to 95% take up. The exception being among certain ethnic minority groups, particularly black people. And Sadiq Khan, he said he's conscious some Londoners are hesitant to receive the COVID vaccine because they are from communities which have in the past been let down by institutions. Now, I don't know whether these numbers are are sort of bad enough to, you know, to to create a real medical problem regarding herd immunity, but it's, it's is this one of those cases where COVID, you know, a very sort of technical, pragmatic issue really exposes kind of, a, you know, a huge kind of problem in British society if there are certain groups of society that just do not trust yeah. 
the government. Of course, of course. And, you know, to Adam's point about uh, the the other side, we're always so good at the emotive and the storytelling and, you know, and rejecting facts and rejecting experts. And all of a sudden, they fucking well need people to be listening to and believing experts, but they've teed people up to have that scepticism um, and that hesitancy. And, uh, you know, there were reports um, at the end of last week about several vaccine centres. I think there was one in Hackney where you've got an incredibly diverse population, huge numbers um, from some of these communities that are fearful of getting the vaccine that they people weren't turning up for their appointments and they 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 were empty at, at times of the day uh, and highlighting how dangerous that would be now same I'm not a virologist I'm not an immunologist epidemiologist any of that so I'm not going to comment on whether there are sufficient numbers of people not turning up that it would have a, a negative impact on us overall but it can't be a good thing and it certainly can't be a good thing for those communities who are you know at most risk you know we've seen that they've had the most terrible figures uh, throughout this pandemic as it is and 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 they are fearful of of institutions that have let them down very very poorly in the past and there's been some brilliant work though happening and 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 a lot of it's happening by organizations like hope not hate um that we work very closely with at best of britain but but swathes of others and including um various uh, health trusts and things like that but the problem is always the messenger um so people say to us well, why aren't the government funding a, a massive drive for these communities to 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 get you know lo- loads and loads of advertising to them well because that might just make the problem worse because it, it is messenger as is so often the case is the one that can you know make or break whether or not people take action based on that message we've reached the end of the show so it's time for the return of but your emails this week, Emma Quinn asks, how long will it be before the COVID blame game won't wash anymore and people start blaming Brexit for all the problems Brexit is causing? September? Christmas? Sooner? Do you think it's already happening? And is COVID masking it? We obviously talked quite a lot about Brexit problems in this episode. When do you think, uh, Ian, that it will that it will come true? Will it, will it really take until COVID has, has sort of um, you know disappeared from the landscape? No, nothing's getting a fucking look in until this thing has has become less severe, you know. And, and we're we're, near, you, we're on the right course now, you know, uh, with the weather, with the vaccines, um, and with the lockdown. The, the thing, you know, the there is space. It's not like the whole pandemic has to end before other things get discussed. But nothing's getting a fucking look in for for you know for the next couple of months. And then pretty much as soon as people come out of lockdown, you know, the hospitality, and I shouldn't even be laughing about it, really, the hospitality industry is going to get twatted by the import controls that we ourselves are going to bring in just as soon as lockdown is over. It's possible that in the summer we're going to get more coverage of it. But, but ultimately, I mean, COVID throws a spanner in all media works, and that's where we're going to be in some form or another until this thing has gone away. I, th- I think because that, that, that the wording of that question suggests there's going to be a, a moment when when it happens. I think it's not just that, as Ian says, and what Ian says is true. That speaking, you know, as a reporter, that so much of what you do, well, not so much me because my beat is Brexit, but so much of what my publication, Politics Home, should all read it, of course, um, puts out is COVID based. But it's not just sort of media attention being absorbed by coronavirus. Let's take the example of the music industry, right? So lots of musicians and their staff and hauliers have written to the government saying the post-Brexit arrangements for us and how it affects our ability to tour in Europe are awful. We're not going to be able to afford it. 
and the future of British musicians performing at European festivals, performing in Europe is at risk. The thing is, coronavirus literally is masking that, masking that at the moment because the, even if it wasn't for mm. um, our relationship with the EU, live music's completely off the menu anyway. Even sort of talking about the impact on, I don't know, Ben Kassim or us or, or, or a certain band's European tour just seems so far-fetched at the moment. So in some ways, you can separate the effect of coronavirus and Brexit. For example, we all know that food supply, food supply chains were incredibly resilient during the first lockdown because the issue was the nature of demand, i.e. people stopped eating out of home, started eating at home a lot more. However, now food supplies are struggling because the issues are structural. We're talking about new friction at the border. Those two things could be separated. However, with the example I just used with musicians, COVID literally is, I guess, obscuring our view of that industry and how it's being affected by our new relationship with Europe, despite those effects being fundamentally different in a pretty damaging way. I'm seeing lots more people that would not normally engage with me at all on politics. You know, people I went to school with, uni with, non-political people begin to make comment about the fact that they can no longer sell their whatever Etsy thing it is that they do or Amazon thing in the same way or at all, or that, you know, um, friends in Northern Ireland can no longer get certain um, lipsticks delivered and, and those sorts of things. So those very, very tangible sort of daily products um, that are now in, in, in short supply because of Brexit. And, and, you know, they'll post screen grabs from websites saying, sorry, we no longer ship to the UK or we no longer ship outside of the UK to the EU and things like that. So I'm seeing normal people become aware of it in a way I haven't before. And obviously, once we're uh, out of COVID um, travel restrictions, I think people will totally feel it um, at the airports and, and the borders in, a, in an incredibly tangible way as well, once, once we can all go on holiday again. So I, I think it'll come. Um, but it, as we've always said, it's going to be more of an atrophy thing than a, you know, acute pain that gets felt at one moment. Well, it is. Like, I mean, it's a good point you make that, that, that I know just in sort of my, my friends or whatever, it really is affecting people that just, you know, small record labels or just people yeah. who, you know, on Discogs or whatever, selling selling vinyl abroad. And, and, you know, that's obviously anybody sort of mailing mailing stuff abroad. And suddenly they're like, oh, I can't really afford to do this now. Yeah. And, and people that put their, up. their clothes on Depop and things like that. And they're now having to say, you know, normally they could have advertised that across the whole of Europe, like your mm. denim jacket that you're getting rid of. And now they're they're having to sort of say to people, Sorry, if you're outside the UK, I can only ship this to you if you're prepared to pay 25 quid shipping on top. It's all those little things that people notice. And with that, it's time to thank Naomi. Thanks. Ian. Well, didn't thank you. And our guest, Adam Payne. Thank you for having me. This week on The Extra Bit, we'll be discussing how COVID-19 has accelerated lifestyle burnout, if we don't get too tired before then. (laughs) You can unlock the full episode by backing us on Patreon, but you'll hear a preview after the music, which is, as always, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, over which we will thank our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thank you from me to Joshua Stapleton, Edward Barron, H.B., Joseph Freeman, V. Scott, and special request, Christian fucking Kent. Thanks from me to Adrian Joyce, Rosie Melville, Andrew Castles, MCF, James Purchase, and Brian Mayen Ball. And finally, thanks to Matthew Street, Oliver Chadwick, Paul T., John Papadacci. 
Judith Downey and Divya Sinhal. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Doreen Linsky with Ian Dunt and Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. On this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, it's almost a year since the first lockdown. Everyone's finding this one hard in different ways, but it's not as if we found work and work-life balance so brilliant before COVID. Is the pandemic underlining deeper problems of burnout with work and our purpose in life? In 2018, The Guardian published an article about the growing problem of burnout, especially among workers in healthcare, social care and education. Burnout is defined not as mental illness, but as chronic workplace stress. More than exhaustion, it's conflict between desire for achievement, the knowledge not everything that can be achieved, leading feelings of inadequacy. Have uh, have any of us experienced what we might call burnout? I mean, what what is it to not be burned out? <laughs> I think that when what comes to mind is those really long evenings in Parliament covering the Theresa May years. Uh, mm. which, for the benefit of our listeners, I had the pleasure of sitting next to Ian in a way which was so physically close it would be deemed immoral nowadays. Um, <laughs> it was, it was immoral you were at the time, actually, and illegal in several <laughs> European countries. It, it was a, re- it was a real, real decadent times back in there. Mm-hmm. But I think that, but I, think that I, I, ju- I just recall it was an accumulation of the kind of physical challenge of working such long days and during those days just just being sort of all constantly thinking uh, um, about quite complex things i remember because what like when you are really interested in politics like we all are you do really care about it and and it can you do get invested in it and i remember i think after a few weeks of late night votes on one brexit amendment or another i was tired in a way i can never recall feeling in my life I was not just physically exhausted. I think mentally I just felt completely sapped. Like I I had nothing left to give on an even remotely sort of intellectual level to the point where I felt that, you know, I had to do something about it. I had to take serious action, whether that be, you know, some time, a few days off work to actually use my weekends to rest and I remember at the time in, in Parliament, there was talk of there being a mental health crisis in Parliament. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely feel you on that one. And I think most that was a taster of the extended edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening. Take care and see you next week. <laughs>